to teach me something the podcast where I learn about something I've been curious about and then I tell all the cool things and some of the really uh hmm, this episode is not going to be cool just you know interesting things to you guys sure I'm Melissa and I'm Everett yeah so this episode is cool but also slightly upsetting sure uh just because history and people still don't act that kind to each other, but especially did not in the past. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So that is my content warning. There's just going to be discussion of some of the messed up stuff colonizers did to indigenous peoples. And uh, and yeah, we'll explore it a little bit. Okay. Um, it's impossible not to when you talk about totem poles. I get it. I could see how they're intertwined. Yeah, but there's some really, really cool stuff as well, I think. Okay, great. Well, how about you teach me something? Okay. You probably don't know where we got the word totem poles from. No, not exactly. Um, so the word totem derives from the Algonquin word otutum. Okay. Which means specifically his kinship group. <laughs> oh, okay. Tutum is just kinship. Anyways, um, it derives from his kinship group. Okay. Uh, totem poles, if you aren't sure what they are, are a type of Northwest Coast like art. Um, they're like poles or posts carved with symbols or figures, usually made from large trees, mostly the Western red cedar tree. Sure. Um, and, you know, of all the uh, material culture produced by the Coastal First Nations, the totem pole is the most recognizable and widespread kind of symbol of the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I can um, see that. And, you know, the array of different styles really shows the, the diversity of the communities that produced them. Uh, and because of the region, you know, the climate, the materials used, you know, wood... We don't really have many examples dating back before 1900. Yeah, I assume they're just like deterioration of the previous ones and yeah, that type of thing would make, make it so there aren't that many left. Right, exactly. Um, but if you do want to see some totem poles uh, in Canada, there are some dating back as far as the 1880s uh, in the Royal British Columbia Museum. That's in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Museum of Anthropology at UBC, which is in Vancouver, yeah. has some examples. Uh, the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, Gatineau, Quebec. Yeah. And you could also check out the Totem Heritage Center in Ketchikan, Alaska. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so who made totem poles? Okay. Who? I mean, I'm sure... There's the awareness that indigenous people made totem poles. Yeah. But there is a misconception, especially if you're not from the area, that it's just a thing that all indigenous people did. Oh, no, definitely not. 
Right, but there there is that conception out there. Okay, sure. Um, so, you know, let's bust that. Um, only six West Coast First Nations um, create or have a history of creating totem poles. Okay. And for a sense of scale, how, like, six out of how many? How many Indigenous First Nations groups are there well, in North America? I was going to say even in the, even in the Pacific West. Uh, I have no, I have, I would definitely need to look that up. I have yeah. no clue what to guess. But it's quite numerous, isn't it? Yeah. What I'm trying to say is these are all people on the coast, like even yeah. slightly inward and you have like the Diné people, all those people didn't carve totem poles. Right. Um, these are, so the, the six, I, I don't know the answer to your question. It's a sure. good question, but I don't know. The six communities that did make totem poles, uh, are the Haida, the Clinket, the Simshian, and those communities are kind of Alaska, British Columbia area. Okay. Um, the Kwakwakiawak and the New Hulk communities, which are in southern BC, and the Coast Salish community, which is kind of Washington and BC. Right. Area. So those are the only ones that, that made totem poles out of the, I'm assuming, hundreds of groups right. across the continent. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so because totem poles are a traditional way of uh, talking about families, clans, passing on some kind of lore, keeping records, it's easy to tell when, you know, when you know these things and you're educated at it, where totem pole comes from based on how it's carved and the style. Um, things are specific to each family and clan, uh, different tribes that have their own touches that they usually do, like the Haida totem poles will have big eyes and, and more deep carving. Uh, the Kwakwakiwak carvings are also deep, but they will have narrow eyes. Okay. The uh, Simshian and the Newhawk totems are known to have more carvings of supernatural and non-human representations on them. Okay. Uh, while the Coast Salish is kind of the opposite, where they'll feature lots of human-looking carvings. Um, so there's this guy... An anthropologist called Edward Mullen, and he wrote a book, Totem Poles of the Pacific Northwest Coast. Um, from what I have seen of it, the pictures are beautiful. Okay. It's a cool book. Um, he argues that the Haida people of the Haida Gwaii Islands were the ones that originated pole carving. And that the practice then spread outward to the Simshian and the Clinket. And then down the coast, the indigenous people of British Columbia and Northern Washington. Um, his evidence is kind of a photographic documentation of the cultural history and also that the Haida poles are seen as more sophisticated designs. So like they may have been doing them for longer? Is that yeah. kind of the idea there? Yeah. Um, I'm not convinced after reading his arguments. It doesn't seem like there is a way to really to be convinced though. Like it, this doesn't sure. seem like a problem or a... Uh, a question that really has a definitive answer because of the lack of recorded history and the oh. lack of surviving polls and yeah. stuff. So I don't know if there'll ever be an answer. So it's a really interesting theory and it might be right. Um, but like there just really isn't. Well, it, if, it, if you're not able to actually go back and catalog, you know, which are the earliest of the like physical evidence, then 
it's going to be very difficult to come up with a conclusive answer. Yeah. So, so there are ways to kind of, you know, like anything else where you analyze commonalities and then what branched off from what as far as maybe a language goes or maybe sure. DNA or whatever, like those kind of things. So there is a way to kind of do that same thing with art and design and that type of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm not an expert in that. So I'm saying he does have some supportive evidence. It's just, it's just not proof and it probably can't be. I guess. But it's a cool theory. Yep. Um, but totem poles, uh, there, there are still quite a few misconceptions. I'm sure there are. Uh, largely around the meaning okay. of totem poles. Um, so some mistakenly believe the First Nations people worship totem poles. Like as idols or sacred objects, or that they contain, I thought they contained the souls of the gods, deities, whatever. I mean, I have heard that theory before. Or they revered them as talismans that could ward off evil. Anyways, this misconception has come about as a result of the Christian missionaries yeah, of, sure. of the time who mistakenly believed they were doing magic or doing weird things at the top, you know, yeah. things that were anti Christian. I don't think they were very open minded going in. Um, Not surprising. At the time, totemism was a big uh, philosophical, cultural thing that was happening in psychology and sociology. Freud wrote books on like some sociologists, Emile Durkheim, all these famous people were talking about totemism and uh, everything just kind of got all wrapped up together. And like I said, I think the Christians obviously went in there looking for things to change. They weren't really going right. to be open to what it was really about, which was that totem poles do express aspects of the First Nations, like, spirituality. Yeah. Um, especially the relationship with their ancestors, but that doesn't make them religious icons. Sure. It's not what they were or are. <laughs> Another misconception is about the linear nature of a totem pole. Um, people assume that the linear representation of the figures is a hierarchy. With, you know, the most important figure as the highest. I see what you're saying. Yeah, okay. That idea became mainstream by the 1930s, and you started hearing the phrase, low man on the totem pole. Right, yes. I have heard that. Right. Um, which ended up actually being the title of a best-selling 1941 comedy book by H. Allen Smith, by the way. Okay. If you search low man on the totem pole, you'll, that's one of the results you get on Google. Yeah. Um, but many poles don't have any sort of vertical arrangement at all. They might have a lone, one, like, only figure on the top. Okay. Nothing else. Um, the ones that do have some kind of hierarchy don't really place the most important figure on top. Okay. Uh, they often reverse the expected, I guess, expected by us, hierarchy, and they put the most important representations on the bottom because they're going to bear the weight of all the other things on the pole. So right. they're the most important Alternatively, they also put the most important figures sometimes at eye level. Oh, you know, okay. eye level to the to the viewer, right? To, yeah. to heighten the significance that you're looking right at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and another misconception, which I myself had once upon a time before we visited the Royal BC Museum in Victoria uh, and saw the poles there, is that all totem poles kind of told a story, a mythological story. And that's kind of the figures of the pole were in the story. And that's what the poles are for kind of telling these myth, the myths. Right. Um, and yeah, there, there are some poles like that kind of, 
Um, the, the elaborately carved tall, tall totem poles that would tell an entire family legend are not actually a common type of pole. Right. I think um, I learned that first time when we were at the museum as well. Yeah. Um, there are tons of types of totem poles, and I will talk about those probably near the end. Okay. Um, but most of them weren't like that, like I said. And even if they are those tall poles that have all the different figures carved into them, the legends aren't something that you can kind of read. Uh, you would need to know what the symbols mean to the indigenous people. You need to know like their history, the customs of their clan, about their family. You need to so basically you need like an interpreter of the pole to explain it to you because it's personal. That makes sense. To the clan and to the families and to all these things. So it's not like you can look at it and be like, oh, that's the classic story of this, this, this happening because these figures are in it. Yeah. Um, so most totem poles display crest animals. Crest animals. So just like, just like, uh, you know, like a family you, crest have a lion yeah, on it or whatever. I was going to say like in, 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 Western European culture, like the family crest is what you're referring to when they had an eagle on it or a bear or a, uh, that type of thing. Right. Yeah. So that marked the family's lineage and okay. validated the rights and privileges that that family might have had based on what their standing was. Or... was. Okay. Yeah. Um, so for example, some Kwakwakiwak families of Northern Vancouver Island belonging to the Thunderbird clan are going to have a Thunderbird crest and the familial legends. So Thunderbird on top and then the familial legends being carved along the pole. Okay. Um, so totem poles um, can be realistically carved or more stylistic sure. in nature. Um, they have animals, fish, plants, insects, humans, supernatural beings like the Thunderbird, all those things on a totem pole. Um, and again, you know, very varies widely depending on which clan, family, yeah, like tribe, like who who is carving these. Um, the history of the totem pole is kind of sparse, to be honest. Sure. Which again comes from that whole thing about the trees breaking down, lack of recorded history, um, and you know. Stealing history on the parts of some people also. Yeah, I could see how totem poles made for a very, almost like iconic thing for other cultures to steal. Yeah. Um, so the first recorded mention of a pole, which was a house pole, it's type, the type of pole it was, okay. was on Langara Island. So that's in the Haida village of Dadans. Uh, around 1790, by a guy named John Bartlett. He wrote about them. European explorers were said to have been astonished that, okay, heavy air quotes, I'm so sorry, savages were capable of architectural creations that rivaled those of their own artists in their countries. Like, yeah. they were just... Wow. Didn't make sense to them. No. Um, so the cedar poles on Haida Gwaii, that would have been the ones that they're seeing and talking about, were carved with tools that is just like stone, shells, beaver teeth, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, most historians and, and experts agree totem pole carving didn't really reach its peak until the 19th century, um, because that's when many coastal First Nations, like, started trading fish and fur with the Europeans. Yeah. And getting new metal tools back, axes and types of things they didn't have before. 
So they're doing these huge carvings without like, you know, an axe, without metal. Yeah. Which is very, very impressive. impressive. Yes. Yeah. Um, totem poles were a really major draw for tourism at the turn of the uh, 19th century-ish. So steamships started coming up the coast in the 1880s and they have these travel brochures advertising totem pole, totem pole tours. Um, they, like, they were the reason to travel to Alaska. Like, everything, every uh, sure, advertisement, <laughs> every advertisement was like, you'll see glaciers and totem poles. There's wildlife and totem poles. There's some mountains and totem poles. Like, come see your totem poles. Like, yeah. it was a huge, it's a huge thing. Um, and then you'll see the Christian missionaries starting to mm-hmm. gum up the works here. Get their claws um, in there. Yeah. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, they generally misunderstood the purpose of totem poles. They assumed they were pagan idols and yeah. they were obstructing their work to convert the indigenous peoples to Christianity. Uh, so the missionaries started to discourage them making new poles and tried to convince them to destroy their existing poles. Oh, just wonderful. Um, yeah. Yeah. Missionary William Duncan wrote in 1875 that the potlatch, so this is the ceremony in which you put up a totem pole. Okay. I'll talk about it in a second. Was, quote, by far the most formidable of all obstacles in the ways of Indians becoming Christians or even civilized. Ouch. Um, Canada's first prime minister, John A. Macdonald, did not see indigenous traditions as valuable or appropriate uh basically under the guise of unifying canada he quote encourages the government to lay an iron hand on the shoulders of the native people by restricting some of their non-essential inappropriate rituals and leading them towards what he perceives as healthier european mindset Mm-hmm. yeah we have a really cool history of our country Really, really, really cool. Yeah, so in 1884, the federal government starts to believe that indigenous cultural activities, beliefs, and traditions are obstructing the goal of assimilation, and they pass the potlatch law, which basically banned cultural expressions and practices like the potlatch. Yeah. Um, And this law also provides them the perfect kind of excuse for confiscating slash stealing cultural items like totem poles and thousands and thousands of pieces of traditional ceremonial regalia. Um, They justified it as preserving them, you know, as the art was dying, according to the government. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wonder why. And, you know, then they started sending them to museums and collections around the world. Yeah. Um, So, you know, most poles last only about 100 years. Western cedar... It's very uh, rot res- resistant. It's great. It lasts yeah. a long time, but that's about how long it's going to last, especially of out in the elements, in the humidity yeah. of the Pacific Northwest. Um, so the First Nations, Indigenous peoples, are like, yeah, that's what happens. It's nature, you know. Like for mm-hmm. them, you know, the disintegration is a natural part of the pole's life cycle. Um, an old one gets taken down, a new one takes its place. You know, this is uh, the way it is it's it's in harmony you know with nature right yeah but the government used this kind of as you know evidence that the indigenous people need to be you know basically saved from themselves because they can't even figure out clearly they're too dumb to figure out how to maintain or preserve their own stuff so we better take it all away from them it's a great line of thought yeah yeah Yeah, it couldn't be that they wanted this to happen it's because they're incapable or whatever you know 
Um, so really quickly before we <laughs> keep going into the heavy stuff, I would like to talk about what a potlatch is because I did find it quite fascinating. Okay, let's go there. Um, it's, it is one of those topics that like honestly would deserve its own episode, uh, but I would need to be kind of an expert on the cultural sensitivities here and, and I'm not the one to do that episode, but okay. it would be really cool to learn more about. Yeah, fair enough. So what can you tell us about it? Well, I'm just going to do like a bare bones generalized explanation here. Um, the word potlatch comes from the Chinook language, meaning to give away or a gift. Okay. Uh, it's it's a ceremony and it's integral to the governing structure and cultural and spiritual traditions of some of the First Nations people living on the Northwest Coast. Some it's more just a ceremony and others like the Haida, it's really uh, part of their government. It, okay. Very interesting. Um it, the potlatches also take place in other First Nations groups, like people in the, you know, more in the interior and subarctic. Okay. Um, but they don't usually have the elaborate kind of gift giving type of things that take place in the potlatch I'm about to describe to you. Okay. So those are usually called Athabascan potlatch. Different type. Um, so the potlatch involves giving away or destroying as much wealth or valuable items as you can. To demonstrate your wealth and power. Okay. Um, potlatches are focused on reaffirmation of like family, clan, international connections, spiritual connections. So you would throw in for an event, like, you know, wedding, birth, death, like different things. Uh, we need to come to some sort of agreement about how to use this natural resource. We'll throw a potlatch with other people around us, like that type of thing. Um, yeah, they use it as, like, a strict resource management regime. Sure. Um, they involve music, dancing, singing, storytelling, speeches, joking, games, all these types of kind of yeah. party activities. Yeah, festivities, yeah. Yeah. Um, they honor supernatural. They recite some oral history, which is very important. Um, you can A potlatch is a good time to make up if there has been a... A divide or yeah, an issue? some kind of fight or something. Um, in the potlatch, the host, in effect, like, is going to challenge, like, another chieftain. Like, this is if we're, it's between clans. Okay. Um, to exceed him in his power to give away or destroy stuff, basically. Okay. And if, if that guest isn't, doesn't return 100% of the gifts received or destroy more wealth than the host, then he, you know, his powers diminish. He loses, he loses face, basically, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, potlatches could also be used for a coming of age ritual. Like I said, they throw them for birth. So they would get their first name. Oftentimes, um, in these indigenous, um, first nations, they would get their first name when they're born. And that first name is usually associated with where they're born, their location. Okay. And then about a year later, the, the family holds a potlatch and, you know, gives gifts to everyone in attendance on behalf of the child. Makes sense. And then during that potlatch, the kid would get their second name. And when they're 12, they're expected to hold their own potlatch and give away all their stuff. Well, you know, as much of their stuff as they can. Um, and then they get their third name. Okay. So that's kind of a, like I said, generalized sure. uh, tradition. So when the Canadian government banned potlatches, hmm. the practice did persist underground despite the risks uh 
which included mandatory jail sentences of at least two months if you participated in a cultural ceremony. Wow. Okay. Um, anthropologists have been able to pra- like study the, the practice of potlatches. Uh, since it's decriminalization, it's reemerged in some communities, luckily. W- when was decriminalization of that? 1951, which I will talk about well, a little later. But, okay. Um, so it is still the bedrock of some indigenous government governance, like in the Haida Nation. Okay. So it's democracy is rooted in potlatch law somehow. Like I said, it would take a lot more expertise <laughs> than me to figure out, explain that one further. But um, I, I'm going to talk about the Haida for just a second. Okay. Because... You can take more than a second. Don't worry. I probably will. Okay. That's an expression. Do you know what those are? Some of them. Okay. Um, so I just want to talk about them because, like I said, they're super important. The The most prolific totem pole carvers out there might have, may have even originated the practice. Right. Um, before the colonizers came, the island home of the Haida people had the most totem poles in the world. The archipelago where the Haida live was surveyed in 1787 by English captain George Dixon. So then he named the islands as they did, you know. Uh, he named them the Queen Charlotte Islands after his ship, which is the Queen Charlotte, which was named after Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, who was the wife of King George III? Oh. Of England. King George III, heck. Yeah. Her- heard that name, huh? I have heard that name before, yeah. yes. And so, then another George, and then another George. Uh, and- embarrassingly late in our history... December 11th, 2009. Oh, that's pretty recent. The BC government announces they're going to introduce legislation in 2010 to officially rename the Queen Charlotte Islands to the name Haida Gwaii. Oh, I didn't realize that. Um, So the legislation received royal assent because we're a silly constitutional monarchy. Yeah. On June 3rd, 2010, which has formalized the name change. The name Haida Gwaii um, means islands of the people. Okay. And the reason I mentioned all of this is because Haida Gwaii is really cool and it's a very important historical and cultural site, not to mention the stunning natural beauty, which I think you should look like Google it. Look at the pictures, Haida Gwaii. It's on my on my list of things I need to do uh, to go there and, and look. But it's considered by archaeologists as an option for a Pacific coastal route taken by the first humans migrating to the Americas. From the Bering Strait. Yeah. So we're not clear on how people arrived on Haida Gwaii. Okay. But archaeological sites have established humans lived there as far back as 13,000 years ago. Great. Okay, cool. So during the end of the last ice age, so between 13,000 and 11,000 years ago, there was really low water levels around Haida Gwaii. What is now Hecate Strait. Cool name, by the way. Yeah. Um, that's the body of water that separates Haida Gwaii from the mainland, in that time was for the most part dry. Okay, so it was like an actual land bridge at that time. Yes, exactly. Um, So throughout that area of dry land, there are lakes and small rivers that went into the ocean. So we're thinking probably a good place for people to have hung out, lived. Yep. So soil samples from the Hecate Strait indicate that many areas were habitable habitable on it habitable <laughs> in the last ice age yeah so recently within the last decade at least <laughs> this doesn't sound so recent anymore underwater archaeologists yes that's a thing yeah totally. from the university of victoria 
started studying some stone structures. So I said discovered in 2014 uh, on the seabed of Hecate Strait. They believe these stone structures date back 13,700 years or possibly further. Cool. Which would then make them the earliest known signs of human habitation in all of Canada. That's very cool. Yeah. So Haida Gwaii is cool. Um, continuing with the cool things that we're learning, the USA had a similar reaction to Indigenous people trying to maintain their cultural practices. Not surprising. Um, so as I was saying before, this would have affected the Indigenous peoples living in Alaska. Yes. These, these rulings. I mean, all across the country, but specifically regarding totem poles. Okay. Um, so in the, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, um... Before they passed the American Indian Religious Freedom Act in 1978, the practice of indigenous religion was just outlawed. Just entirely. Yeah. Um, traditional indigenous cultural practices were strongly discouraged by Christian missionaries, which included the carving of totem poles. Yeah. Um, missionaries urged the converts to, you know, destroy their poles, just like in Canada. Yeah. Um, nearly all totem pole making had stopped by 1901. They did continue some monumental and mortuary poles in remote villages as late as 1905. Well, that's not much later, though. Nope. Um, but beginning in the late 1930s, there was kind of a renewal of the practices and recognition of the artistic traditions and value. And in 1938, the United States Forestry Service started a program to reconstruct and preserve the old poles. Oh, cool. They okay. salvaged about 200 of them. Which is about a third of the ones we think were standing at the end of the 19th century. A third? Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you basically had none of it happening for 30 years, salvaging a third of them is probably decent. So here's a, a cool thing. Um, in June 2022, there was some biennial celebrations in Juneau, Alaska. And the Sea Alaska Heritage Institute unveiled the first 360-degree totem pole in Alaska. 360-degree... Th- I'm assuming that means carved on all sides. That's what the oh, That's what I was going to ask. Okay. That's what the pictures looked at. Yeah. So it's uh, 6.7 meters tall. That's 22 feet. Yeah, that's pretty big. Um, it's called the Sea Alaska Cultural Values Totem Pole. Okay. And it's carved out of a 600-year-old cedar tree. Holy cow. And represents all three tribes of Southeast Alaska, the Klinkit, Haida, and Simshian. Unfortunately, now it's time to go back to Canada's complicated history with totem poles. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1950, Marius Barbo, who is an ethnographer and lifelong employee of the Canadian Museum of Civilization, wrote a book called Totem Poles. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to include some of the things that he wrote. In there, just to show you what the cultural attitudes were about totem poles at the time. Sorry, what what date was this? What time period was this? 1950. Okay. Yeah. So hopefully we've, we've made progress, is what I'm saying. I'm hoping so. Quote, let this book be a memorial to the native artists of the Pacific Coast. Their genius has produced monumental works of art on a par with the most original the world has ever seen. They belong one and all to our continent and our time, and have shown how creative power may thrive in remote places. Independent of our great moderns, from Turner to Gauguin, Van Gogh and Cezanne, they were never less their contemporaries. That's nice, right? Yeah. Right? And then in his, in his uh, introduction, 
He writes, The art of carving poles belongs to the past. Racial customs and stamina are on the wane everywhere, even in their former strongholds. Totem poles are no longer made. Hmm. Yeah. It took a nosedive real fast, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, stamina. Racial customs and stamina, suggesting it's a, that they're... It's an odd way of writing, I feel. I mean, especially when I assume the stamina he's talking about has taken a beating from all of the Western Europeans telling them to stop. Yeah, they're running out of gas. Well, it's because you've been siphoning it all off, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, as I kind of said before, a lot of this legislation... Most of the worst of it was repealed in 1951. Okay. Which was still a very, very long time. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, this is all terrible stuff, by the way. Like, things like how they weren't allowed off the reservations without a pass. Mm -hmm. Like, things like that. That's things that are effective to, you know, kidnapping and hostage holding and all these types of things. So, all that stuff, yeah, didn't... uh, And when I say come to an end it didn't actually come to an end you know what i mean it just wasn't in the legal code anymore but it doesn't the mean discrimination did not yeah. come to an end um the relocation and repatriation of stolen materials is still you know a monumental task that's still being uh worked on to this day yeah yeah um in 1958 the federal government commissioned Kwakiutl carver mungo martin to carve a 30-meter-tall pole as a gift for Queen England, or Queen of England. Wow. Queen England. Hmm. Queen Elizabeth II yeah. of England, who was the queen in 1958. <laughs> yeah, she was. Was she? I, I read the Queen of England. She must have been, right? Yeah, I mean, her reign was 70... 75, 70, 78. Something in the 70s. Yeah, but it just ended. Yeah. I'm gonna need you to Google this while we're talking because I'm okay. I don't want to get that one wrong. But anyways, to commemorate the 100th birthday of British Columbia, federal government commissioned this carver for the Queen of England. Okay. Ironically, somewhat ironically, I would say. Yeah. Um. So as that one author alluded to, some people said that you know totem pole carving almost died out. Because of, you know. Yeah. Because of. Stamina. The stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it really depends on what you consider a totem pole and which First Nations group you're talking about and all that other stuff. What's a real pole, what's not. So among some Haida groups, they stopped making full-size poles in the late 1880s and kind of ramped up the production of miniature poles. So the miniaturization kept that totem pole form alive in the, in the Haida groups um, at exactly the same time in the 1880s, the Kwakwakiwak groups started making full-size poles with multi, like multiple figures on them, mm-hmm. which are kind of the, more like what we picture today. Yeah. But that was like not a thing they did until then. Okay. Those ones we picture today. So they never really stopped making those as much as they could. <laughs> um, other groups like the Coast Salish, who had ancestor figures and other kinds of sculptural traditions started carving poles in the early 20th century to kind of keep up with the expectations that that's what the Northwest Coast people do is carve these poles. Okay. Um, so like some cultural pressure there. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is that the best answer is that the totem pole is an evolving, constantly evolving art form. 
mm-hmm. there was never a moment when it almost died, but it most certainly has changed. Yeah. Continues to change and will continue to change. Makes sense. Okay, I figured it out. Okay. She ruled for 70 years, 1952 to 2022. Okay, so she was the Queen of England in 1958 when when we gave her a poll. For six years already. We gave her a poll for British Columbia's 100th birthday. Yeah, interesting how we did that. Okay. Makes so much sense. Hey, at least it was commissioned and not stolen. You know what? That is... progress, okay? Yes, That is some good progress. So, what do totem poles look like? I'm sure everyone has seen a totem pole picture of a totem pole. Yeah. Probably. Um, they are usually between three and 18 meters tall. Usually. Mm-hmm. There's little mini handheld ones, like we kind of just said, but some can be over 20 meters tall. Yeah. Very impressive. So the cultural variations of totem pole styles, is, it's quite complex, but as I was alluding to before, there are some generalizations about, um, totem poles based on the region and, and clans, right? So some more examples of that I thought I'd give in this section. The Coast Salish um, that lived in the lower Fraser area tended to carve house posts rather than single standalone totem poles. House posts. So like it's part... a type of totem pole okay. that goes inside the house. I will right. talk about them um, later when I talk about types of poles. But yeah, okay. just like a... I'll hold on to my questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, I was about to say the sentence that the house posts would frequently appear on the interiors of the longhouses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in the central coast, the Haida of Haida Gwaii and the Simshian, the Simshian, uh, they carved huge towering totem poles, some over a hundred feet tall. Holy cow. Wow. Okay. And they'd erect them beside their longhouses. Uh, coast Simshian poles often had horizontal line breaks carved between totem figures. Okay. Uh, Hide poles would have closely intertwined designs with a shallow relief. I don't know what that means. I had to write it with a shallow relief because I didn't really understand what that means. I think... I don't know. I think that's an art yeah. thing. Okay. <laughs> I didn't have time to look up everything. That one I, I wasn't sure about. So if any art person wants to tell me what that means, that'd be cool. Um, the Kwakwakiwak poles, in contrast, had deeply etched surfaces, jutting wings, jutting beaks, more sharp, uh, angular features. Yeah. Yeah. Each character, though, despite where you're from or what you do, each character was always carved with some very specific traits to be recognizable between... Sure. Between areas, if that makes sense. So, like, even though there are the variations in carving styles between different artists and the communities, for example, like, the raven is always going to have a long straight beak, while the eagle will always have a curved beak. Yeah. Just have to be very recognizable. The beaver's always carved with two large front teeth, a piece of wood in his front paws, and a paddle-shaped tail. All makes sense, yeah. Right, yeah. So, in general, traditional totem poles do have animals, right? Like, in general, animals are people, but... I thought I would say a little bit about what the animals kind of represent, the traits. Okay. Um, so the Thunderbird, power, strength, and leadership. The Bear, instincts, guardian, strong-willed, strength. By the way, a lot of these say strength, like almost every animal, so I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so they all get to be part of that. That's great. Yeah, except for the Beaver. 
The oh. beaver is distur- determined, strong-willed builder and overseer. Not not disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Um, the shark, though. Strength. Okay. Shark. Shockingly. Yeah, well. Uh, yeah. Prowess. Survival. Hunting. Superiority. And another guardian. Thing. Okay. The raven. Creation. Transformation. I can see that, sure. Knowledge. Self-realization. Divinity. And the subtlety of truth. Sure. Yes. I mean, the raven's a, um, a, typically a cool... Not strong. ...character in a lot of cultures. Yes. The wolf, supernatural powers, hunting abilities, loyalty, family ties, communication, education, success, intelligence, individuality, and freedom. Okay. The frog. Wealth, abundance, ancient wisdom, rebirth, good luck, healing, the bridge between the human and spirit worlds. Sure. Cleansing, sensitivity, peace, and adaptability. The frog. Okay. The eagle. Focus. Strength. Peace. Leadership. Friendship, freedom, and prestige. Sure. And the killer whale. Strength. But specifically strength in numbers and family. Okay. Romance. Longevity. Harmony. Travel. And protection. Um, yeah. Those are the most popular. Things like the salmon would appear. Oh, yeah, I don't of know course. what the salmon means, though. Yeah. I didn't find the meaning of that one. Um, in terms of color, they would, you know, use natural pigments from things like charcoal and ochre and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, traditionally, there was a limited choice of colors. So, on a totem pole, you will see black, red, white, and green, or none of the above. Sure. Okay. Black symbolized power. Red, blood, war, and valor. Mm-hmm. White was purity, peace, and death. And green is, you know, the earth, hills, trees, that type of thing. Okay. Um, but the choice of colors does also depend on the individual tribes. So the colors might have had more personal meanings to each tribe. Those are very generalized, again. Um, but whatever their preference for their type of carving tool they use, artists will use that tool to create swirling oval shapes um, that are common in the Coastal First Nations artwork known as ovoid designs. O-V-O-I-D. I do recommend Googling it. I swear the second you see it, you'll be like, oh, that. Yep. Okay. Yep. That is instantly recognizable to me as a Pacific Northwest type of First Nation design. Ovoid. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So how did you make a totem pole? I think we all know they carved it. Um, but that requires, you know, they go into the forest and pick the tree first. You know, they're very, uh, they're very selective, basically, you know, waiting for the tree that speaks to them, waiting for the tree that they can visualize a certain story they want to tell, whatever they want to do. And they often do like a ceremony before they harvest the tree for the totem pole. Um, the ceremony is gratitude and respect and honoring the tree. Um, so it's, like I said before, Western red cedar. Yeah. It's rot resistant. It's straight grained, so it's easy to carve. Yeah. They, and they like grow that. very straight too. Like in, in the first place. Oh, well, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, 
I wanted to put this quote in. There's an artist, Roy Henry Vickers, uh, from the Simshian and Haida communities that says each tree is like a human being. It has its own personality and uniqueness. So they go find the perfect tree. That's a big part of it. Um, they cut down the tree, they move it to the carving site, and then they strip the bark and the outermost layer of wood called the sapwood. Then uh, they choose which side they want to carve and they remove the back half of it. Okay. Then they hollow out the log in the center just to make it lighter and it yeah. keeps it from cracking. Um, and then, so in the early days, they would probably paint a basic design to guide the carver. Um, today's carvers actually use paper patterns as outlines. Makes sense. Um, traditionally, men carved totem poles. Okay. These days, which was a practice, by the way, made even worse by the fact that when we made certain things illegal, uh, the women would stay in the community and take care of everything, and the men would go off deep into the forest where the government agents couldn't see them and do these cultural practices still, but the women then weren't involved. Right. Um, yeah. Which okay. Is sad. Um, modern carvers, like I said before, there was like beaver teeth and shells and stuff. Modern carvers use chainsaws to make kind of the big rough cuts. Yeah. And then adzes and chisels and stuff to, to chop the wood. Um, the knives and very small, fine working tools are for the final details. And then after it's carved, they can paint it or not. Yeah. They're not always painted. So I did say I'd talk about the types of poles. Excellent. So first type is a welcome pole. So they're mostly just carved by the Kwakwakiwak, Salish, and the, uh, like the Nootka people. Um, so most of the poles include large carvings of humans. Some are as tall as 12 meters. Okay, it's still pretty big. Yeah, so they place them at the edge of a stream or saltwater beach, both to welcome guests and intimidate enemies type of. It, it sounds like it's, in a sense, to kind of mark territory in, in a way. Is that accurate? Mm, yeah. Kind of. Okay. Yeah. It's about being hospitable to people that want to be there. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, another type is called a memorial pole. And you can probably imagine that, you know, it's created to honor an important deceased person. Makes sense, yeah. Uh, usually commissioned by their successor. Okay. Yep. Uh, memorial poles tend to be the tallest type of pole, particularly among the Simshian of the Nasenskina rivers in central British Columbia. So this type of pole usually stands in front of a clan house and is usually erected about a year after the person has died. Mm -hmm. um, the clan chief's memorial pole might be raised at the center of a village instead. So its purpose is to, you know, obviously honor the deceased and to identify the relative who's taking over as his successor within the clan to the community. Makes sense. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So traditionally, the memorial pole has one card figure at the top, but they might sometimes add another one just to the bottom of the pole. Memorial poles also sometimes commemorate an event. So, for example... Several memorial poles were erected by the Clinkets in honor of Abraham Lincoln. Oh. One of these poles was relocated to Saxman, Alaska in 1938. That pole is now called the Lincoln Pole. 
and it commemorates the end of hostilities between two rival Tlingit clans, and it symbolizes their hope for peace and prosperity following the American occupation of Alaska. Hmm. Yeah, so the story goes that in 1868, the United States government builds a customs house and fort on what's called Tongas Island, and they left the USRC Lincoln to patrol. Okay. USRC standing for United States Revenue Cutter Service. Mm-hmm. Which I had not heard of. Nope. Before. Mm-hmm. So I had to check that out. A little off topic here. The United States Revenue Cutter Service is an odd little naval type branch of armed force. Yeah. Uh, under the control of the Treasury Department. If you didn't know, mm-hmm. cutters are a type of ship. So yes. revenue cutters. Revenue as in literally the Trevenue, Treasury Department and cutters the, as in the, the ship. The ship, yeah. Just the words together also sound like A bunch tax of taxmen sailing on <laughs> yeah. Does it kind of remind you of Monty Python? Because that's bit. what it reminded me of. The accountants on the boat. Yeah. There. Uh, well, boat. That office building. Office building boat, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, fun fact. The United States revenue cutters eventually merge with the United States Life Saving Service which is also interesting, uh, to form the Coast Guard. Good. Okay. So I went a little off topic here. Just to remind you, the the ship called Lincoln is on this area to patrol. Right. That's where we're at. And then one group, the Kaguantans, attacks the other group, the Tongas group. Yeah. And they have a little war between them. But I don't know why they made this decision to be on whose side, but the Lincoln ship jumps in on the Tongas side and helps them defeat their rivals. So they are very thankful and commissioned the Lincoln Pool to commemorate that, their victory in war with the help of the USRC Lincoln. Okay. So there you go. Uh, Yes. A bunch of random facts that you now know. Uh, Yes. I bet you didn't know how the Coast Guard was created. No, did not. So, there's also house frontal poles, they're called. Okay, as opposed to, like, other types of house poles? Yeah, so okay. there's house frontal pole and there's an interior house post. So does okay. frontal just mean that it's on the outside at the entrance? Yeah, it's like it's like an a entryway. So, they're usually about 6 to 12 meters tall, and they're kind of the most decorative type of pole. Okay. Um, the story... It'll tell the story of families, clans, or villages. It's also known as a heraldic crest or family pole. They're placed outside the clan house of the most important village leaders. And they often carve watchman figures at the top of the pole to protect the pole owner's family and the village. Um, and some of them are used as like an entrance or doorway. So they like attach it to the center front of the home and, and they have they carve an oval shaped, you know, opening through the base. So you, to walk in through. Okay. So not all of them are like doors, but they can be used that way. They can be. Okay. Um, yeah. And then there's the interior house posts. So they're usually only two to three meters tall. Um, they The interior posts will support the roof beam of a clan house. And so it's got a large notch carved into the top. Got it. To rest that beam in. Um, so they, there might be two to four or even more house posts in a clan house, depending on which cultural group is the one that builds it. Sure. Um, so the carvings on these poles, like the house frontal poles, are often used for storytelling. 
and of course the storytelling of the family's history. Um, house posts were carved by the Coast Salish most often, and they were more common than those like freestanding totem poles you see in the more northern groups. Okay. Um, less commonly, they'll make another type of pole called a shame pole or a ridicule pole. Hmm. Um, Doesn't seem like the other ones. <laughs> which they could have used to get some debts paid, basically. Oh. Like shame people into repaying debts. Okay. Yeah. So shame poles were more common in the 19th century. Uh, today, they've kind of come back as a form of protest by First Nations groups. Okay. So they're placed in prominent locations and removed after the debt is paid or whatever wrong happened was... Uh, righted. Righted, yeah. yeah. Um, so shame pole carvings would represent the person being shamed. This makes sense. Yeah, so a famous shame pole is called the Seward Pole. Um, it's also at the Saxman Totem Park in Saxman, Alaska these days. It was created to shame former U.S. Secretary of State William H. Seward for not reciprocating the courtesy or generosity of his clean-cut hosts following a potlatch given in his honor. Hmm. That guy. So they painted the nose and ears of Seward red on this pole to symbolize his cheapness. <laughs> Good. Um, here's another example. On March 24th, 2007, so this is going to illustrate, you know, like I said, the protest form of the pole. Yeah. They erected a shame pole in Cordova, Alaska that has carved into it um, an inverted and distorted face of the former Exxon CEO, Lee Raymond. This pole was carved by Clinkett fisherman Mike Weber. Okay. And um, it was made in protest of the environmental disaster and the political mishandling of the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1989 in the Prince William Sound. Yeah. So specifically, it represents the unpaid debt of $5 billion in punitive damages that a federal court in Anchorage, Alaska determined Exxon still owes for causing the oil spill. Yes. So, you know, shaming them for their unpaid debts to the earth. Totally. Yeah. Um, lastly, and most rare, is the mortuary pole. And more rare. Okay. Yes, the rarest type of pole, it says, actually. Okay, cool. Um, so, the pole, it incorporates grave boxes. Um, incorporates grave boxes. With carved supporting poles as well. It reminds me of that Egyptian myth we just read about, about the grave box in the middle of the tree yeah yeah so um yeah it's a pole that contains the remains of a deceased in a grave box very cool okay and so it serves as like a tomb and a headstone basically it usually has a recessed back to hold the grave box inside of yeah um and and they are among the tallest poles 15 to 21 meters wow. tall, generally. Okay. Um, the Haida and Clinkit people are the ones that erect mortuary poles if a very important individual dies. Um, they may have a single figure carved at the top, which may uh, be the clan's crest. But usually they'll carve the entire length and ashes or the whole body is placed in that proportion of the pole. Okay. Yeah. Um so I want to uh, end 
today by talking about some of the return of stolen items stories. Uh, so for really for generations, um, First Nations peoples have been trying to get their stuff back. Uh, yeah. Um, Reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when all that discriminatory legislation, well, when most of it was repealed in 1951, then a new generation of artists was officially allowed to start learning totem pole carving again and um, reclaiming totem poles became more of a pressing matter at that time. So I'll tell you an example of a, uh, here's a story about a Fortations group trying to get one of their totem poles back. Sure. So in 1872, Chief Gapsko commissioned the artists Hemzied and Wakas to carve a pole in the memory of his wife and children. It's believed they died of smallpox or mm. landslides in the area. They're having a lot of issues with landslides, but also it was right when their populations were being completely... Sure, um, yeah. Just, just, I want to... Decimated. I want to say really. decimated, but that word is... Has a meaning. Confusing. Yeah. Um, so the federal government adopts the policy of salvage anthropology, as I talked about. Um, and people known as Indian agents begin to buy out totem poles from communities along the Skeena River, for example. It's where we are in this story geographically in BC. Okay. So, by the way, this Indian agent thing is, is a weird, weird, terrible thing. It's just, it's just weird. So, First Nations people in Canada were treated as wards of the state, meaning they were placed in the care of the government. Yeah. Okay. Until such time as they were, quote, assimilated and enfranchised. Hmm. So under the terms of what was called the Indian Act, the decision-making rights and responsibilities of the First Nations peoples were taken away from them and given to the Superintendent General of Indian Affairs, which is a federal um, ministry position, uh, so to administer that, the Department of Indian Affairs employed what they called Indian agents to manage the local affairs of the people. On their behalf for them. Right. They can do that themselves, clearly. Clearly. So in 1927, a man named Ivor Fogner, who was an Indian agent in Bellacoola, wrote to the Department of Indian Affairs asking permission for the Swedish consul of British Columbia to purchase the Gapskolak's pole. See, the director of a museum in Sweden really wanted a pole because all the other major European museums were getting poles and he wanted one too. Yep. The prestige. He needs it. Yep. So one day in 1929, the villagers in the Heisla village of Miscusa go away on a fishing trip. And when they return, the pole was gone. It was cut down. Um, the pole was shipped to Sweden, where it actually remained in storage until 1980. Wow. <laughs> so okay. it sat in storage for 51 years, finally being displayed in 1980 at the National Museum of Ethnography in Stockholm. So this whole time, after decades of searching, the Heisler finally find it in 1991. So this, this is... This, They've been searching this whole time, basically. To try to find out where it went. Yeah. Yeah. So, they begin this long journey of trying to repatriate the pole. Uh, the museum says no, it belongs to the Swedish government. The Swedish government says no, it belongs to the Swedish government. You know, that, that story. Finally, 
the Heisler and the museum negotiate a plan for repatriation, it, they'll give it back if the Heisler agrees to carve them an exact replica and give it to them. They're going to pay them or anything for it, though. It's just, you know, just a trade. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so, in April 2006, the poll returns to Vancouver. On July 1st, 2006, the Heisler officially welcomed the poll home to Kitimat, and it was the first poll in Canada to be repatriated from overseas in 2006. Wow. We have a long way to go. I mean, have any others even been repatriated from overseas? I don't know. Okay. Uh, Louisa Smith, a spokesperson for the Heisler chief, said the repatriation of the Gatskolax totem pole has been a journey of a hundred years and thousands of miles. Our children and future generations will be able to see, touch, and feel a piece of their history reclaimed by a nation against all odds. If that's the odds they're facing, I don't know if many are going to be returned. But I thought that we were in a different place now. I thought that we're starting to understand that we shouldn't just take things and put them in museums away from the pe- people and culture that they were taking created from? them. But um, we'll see if things get better soon. Um, by the way, that story I just told you uh, is a subject of a few films on the National Film Board website, uh, NFB. You should look at that website. It's very cool. I don't know why I didn't know about it before now. Yeah. <laughs> um, that movie, there's uh, Totem, The Return of the Gapskolex Pole. Um, and there's other really cool films to watch there. For instance, I watched another one called Now is the Time. And it's only like 16 minutes or something like that. Oh, long. Long. That one. The other one was longer. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to jump on and watch something, just like a really little one, I recommend that one. It's about um, on August 22nd, 1969, the people of Old Masset Village on Haida Gwaii raised their first totem pole in almost a century. Wow. And so it was a big celebration. There's documentary footage. Um, some new interviews with the the carver and stuff. So uh, they talk about, you know, the elders are speaking of a forest of totem poles and they recall the time when they were coming throughout the Haida Gwaii archipelago and then the late 1960s, there was almost nothing. Um, They talked about their memories of the ministry telling them, "If, if you don't get rid of totem poles, you will never go to heaven. So they were told to chop them up and burn them. And they wanted to go to heaven, so they did. That was what that that interview with the elder kind of was heartbreaking when when they said, "We wanted to go to heaven, so we did it." Like, yeah, <laughs> anyways, yeah, it's so sad. So, I was also touched by the people. You know, they're saying that time in their lives. You know, they called it the void, the sorrow, the dark period. They felt that they lacked all connection to life. You know, just with all their culture removed. So, Robert Davidson, who his hide name is. Good son glands. I'm probably saying that terribly, but um, he was 22 years old and he was looking around his village and saw all this sadness and he wanted to carve a pole to bring the tradition back for the elders. He wanted to do it as a gift for the elders of the village. Um, he had been carving poles, but nothing bigger than a handheld okay. totem before. Um, he, by the way, he has since become an internationally renowned carver. So you can look up his work, Robert Davidson. Good for him. Um, after he had carved it, and it took a long time. There was actually a construction crew in the vicinity that had a crane, and they came over and offered to raise the the pole with their crane for for the people. Um, but they insisted on doing it themselves with their old, the traditional yeah. ways of raising the pole. That makes sense. Um, having their potlatch, yeah. Um, so it was really interesting. I'm going to describe it terribly, but it takes hundreds of people, hundreds. So there is, 
ropes everywhere at different levels and all different directions. And then there's also these like large logs they kind of tie in an X shape to brace the pole. Right. So they kind of like first they they pull it along a bunch of logs like almost like a a conveyor belt to get it to where it needs to go. So that's how they do that, even though it's so huge and heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the hole dug. They put the bottom in. They pull up on the ropes to raise it like six inches and then adjust the bracing logs, brace it, raise it six inches, brace it, raise it six inches, brace it like a foot, you know, like at yeah. a time. Um, and this village is made up of the Eagle and Raven clans because the population was so decimated they ended up moving together. Sure. Um, so traditionally, one clan would be the ones hosting the pole raising and the other clan would be the, the guests. Um, but in this case, they all did it together, you know, with hundreds of ravens over here, hundreds of eagles over there, raising this pole together to kind of show the unity. Um, and it was just, like, clear from the movie how important it was to the village, but the ceremony really made it clear how much they lost. Like, the people were showing up with paper headdresses and toy drums because their regalia was lost to the government yeah. and such. Um, and you could tell that it, it helped, but they still had this... Uh, heavy kind of sadness. So yeah, I do recommend going on the NFB website and checking out some of those films. They're really, really cool. Um, and I do want to end by doing a shout out to just a few famous totem pole artists. Great. Uh, like I said, I've mentioned mentioned uh, Robert Davidson as mm-hmm. one that carved that pole. Um, Bill Reed is probably the most famous totem pole carver in the world. I even know that name, um, yeah. The Haida, he's a Haida pole carver. Um, so... The Canadian $20 bills between 2004 and 2011, so not any longer, but they, on the reverse side, had a picture of Bill Reed's artwork, Spirit of Haida Gwaii, totem pole. Yeah. Um, anyways, the bill had a picture of, you know, a Haida chief in a canoe, accompanied by the raven, frog, and eagle. Anyway, that's really cool. Uh, other famous totem pole carvers, Henry Hunt, Mungo Martin, who I mentioned, Mungo's grandson, Doug Cranmer, uh, and a lady named Ellen Neal, if you want to check out some female artist. Uh, all these people, like Bill Reed, have their works at the Museum of Anthropology at UBC, and most of them also have some work at the Royal BC Museum in Victoria. Um, and, you know, if you really want a totem pole, it usually costs between 25000 and 60000 to commission one, just so you know. Oh, that's actually not nearly as much as I thought. Really? Yeah. Oh, it's kind of right around what I, okay. what I thought. Does take some a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I was thinking it might take more. <laughs> yeah, well that doesn't include the price to get you the pool. Sure. Which I think would also be monumental. Probably pretty high, yeah. 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 So that's uh that's all I got about tone and pulse. Um I found it super cool, but again, there's so much other stuff out there. And I do encourage you to take a look at those artists. It was super, super nice to see the pictures of their carvings. Um, I don't know, again, what our next topic's going to be in two weeks. So as always, email me if you have questions or topic suggestions or corrections or anything like that. Uh, the email is teachmesomething4, the, the numeral 4, at gmail.com. Uh, once again... I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. I hope you learned something new. Mm